So verse 18 of chapter 3, Colossians says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Already we have a problem. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things. Thank God we're not children. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So right here you have a passage that has um, seemingly on the surface, a lot of our, uh, the people in our society today would have a lot of problems with this, right? Chauvinism, slavery. How is it that Paul can talk about these things and not address injustice. I mean, it had to happen in those days, right? That people were taking advantage of their positions of authority, that people were abusing slaves, that people were mistreating women. Why doesn't Paul address those things? Instead, he doesn't say anything about how they should change the roles. Instead, he says, in the roles that you're given, this is the way that you should act. Well, let's pray and we'll find out what in the world do we do with this. And Lord, we just pray one more time that you would anoint tonight's service, that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit, that we take away something from this, and we become better people, people engaged in the community of believers. And uh, we do want to pray for vertical identity, that people's lives are changed forever, Lord. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Okay, so there's an atheist named Sam Harris. Uh, you may not know who he is, but you should, because he's one of the four horsemen of the new atheism. His books have been around for a little bit at least a decade, uh, 2006, he wrote a letter to the Christian nation. If you haven't read it, you probably don't want to uh, because you'll probably be really offended or discouraged. But he's, the, the difference between normal atheists and new atheists is the new atheism is very angry. And so Sam Harris says a lot of terrible, disgusting things that you never even want to repeat in church about religion, saying that anyone, whether you're a Christian or you're Islamic, whatever, you're a Muslim, um, all those people do more harm in the world than they do good. But he try, tries to like lump Christians in with everybody else. And one of the things they often say is that the Bible condones slavery. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that you shouldn't have slaves. And this is why people use this, you know, to oppress African Americans uh, way back when, around the times, you know, when we had slavery in, in this country. And uh, so people use the Bible to justify that. And so Sam Harris would look at this and say, like, you guys believe that the Bible is a moral book, that Christians, in following the Bible, they'll be better people than people that don't follow the Bible. Well, then how can you believe in a book that oppresses women and also condones slavery? That's kind of what his argument would say. Now, if you were posed that question, let's say that one of your friends in high school, maybe your teacher, was on YouTube one night, watched the Sam Harris video, and came up to you and said the exact same thing, what would you say? Um... Well, the main message of the Bible is love. And then you kind of get stuck in a rabbit hole, right? Because then the, what they'll say to you is, well, does that mean that you discount portions of the Bible? Like the Old Testament, when it talks about slavery, when it talks about things that are difficult to, to deal with, what do you do with this? Right? 
So this is kind of like Sam Harris's approach. So what do you say to a person like that? That says, like, these texts seem to be oppressing women. It seems to condone slavery. In this passage, it's a little bit more specific about bond servants. Now, bond servants were people that were willingly uh, slaves after their times of being a slave. So let me explain how I would answer, and then we'll kind of explain what a bond servant is. So what I first and foremost say is, like, even though people can twist the Bible to say things it doesn't say, the most important thing is that we know the context in which the Bible was written. Okay, so this is not addressing slavery like we've had in our country and in America. This is not addressing American slavery. This is addressing something that was very normal in their times in the New Testament, okay? So we can talk about the Old Testament another day, but at least for the New Testament in this text, because we want to stay relevant to this passage, is that in those days, they didn't have credit cards, okay? It's not like you could just, like, put on your Amex or your Visa card and just, when you went into debt, you're just like, all right, here I go. And just, so what did you do when you had debt? Well, many people would go into slavery. There's vast portions of the population, especially here in Rome, that were enslaved. Now, slavery back then was a very, very, um, a normal thing, number one, but not to say that there wasn't oppression, not to say that people weren't brutal, but to be a slave and be a servant, that distinguish, it's really hard to distinguish those two things. Today, we would be able to distinguish a person who's a maid or a servant versus a slave, right? Because we have that picture in our mind. In those days, they didn't really have a word that distinguished the two. You either just were a slave, a servant. And so knowing that, there are obviously some people that oppress and treat them harshly, but because there was no debt system otherwise, many people would uh, venture into slavery. But if you knew the context of which this was written, actually what you find is there is a thing called bond servants. So when there were slaves in the household, sometimes people would actually enjoy the condition they were in because uh, in the Old Testament you had seven years you were a slave and then at the seventh year you had to go free. So that was kind of like the rule. So you can, you know, be their slave for life or whatever. But a lot of people, after that seven-year period, they would actually want to stay slaves, want to be serving that family because either they loved the family, they grew accustomed to it, or um, maybe because they weren't able to afford just living out on their own or they couldn't purchase their freedom, etc. So they'd actually, what they would do is they'd take their ear, they'd go to the door, and they'd kind of like get this earring. And by doing that and stapling it to the door, it's kind of a weird thing, but that was symbolizing saying, I want to serve this family for the rest of my life. And that's what would be a bond servant. So knowing this picture, and many of you may already know this, this is why we are to be bond servants of Christ, willingly serving our Lord Jesus. Okay? So now, then the question is, knowing this, the context of slavery kind of removes this kind of like, you know, this picture that we might have looking at the American slave trade. Now, why is it that Paul doesn't directly say, well, you should just let all the slaves go free? Well, it's important to know that Actually, the Bible was one of the principal texts in order to uh, eradicate slavery from our country. It's because people saw the worth and dignity of the individual. And that comes from a belief in God, not a belief in evolution, where you believe in the survival of the fittest. It comes from believing that we're each, in, uh, each and every person is made in the image of God. And therefore, we have that worth. And so to say, why didn't Paul address this? And therefore, the, the Bible must be immoral because it doesn't address it and say that, like, slavery should be abolished or whatever, is actually a fallacy called argument from silence. So it's to say that because they didn't say anything, therefore they're guilty of basically hating 
women or they believe in slavery. It's an argument from silence. You can't make that. Listen to what David Guzik says. He's a commentator. He says this. Without making an overt protest against slavery, Paul seemed to understand that if he could establish the point that slaves were equals in the body of Christ, full human beings with both responsibilities and rights, that they should be treated in a manner both just and fair, then in time, the whole structure of slavery in the Roman Empire would crumble, and it did. Listen, what's more powerful than Paul just advocating and yelling and shouting we should eradicate slavery is to actually undermine it by talking about the dignity and worth of the individual. Because the more that you believe that, it's, it's the same thing with abortion, right? When we believe that there's an actual life inside of that womb, then you don't have to go around and protest. And I mean, not to say that that's wrong. There's a lot of people that have done it. Many of you here may have been part of a protest. You have the freedom to do that. But what I'm saying even better than that is when someone knows deep down inside that what they're doing is ending a life, a human life, well, that changes everything. You don't have to go and convince people because they'll be convinced from the inside out. And so if you can prove that these are humans that you're oppressing, these are people that Jesus loves and you can have their hearts transformed, you can eradicate slavery from the inside out. And that's the whole point. And that's what Paul saw. So the next thing we see, we'll get to slavery in a second, but the, uh, the first thing that we really see in this passage is wives submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And so you have all these different relations, right? So wives and husbands, children and fathers, servants and masters. These are the kind of relations that we see discussed in this passage. And our main hangup with passages like this is that we assume that submission equals inferiority. That's why this disturbs us. When we see things like wives submit to your husbands, the reason why that kind of pokes at us is because we assume that a person that submits is inferior to the person who has authority. But I'm going to make the case tonight that I don't think that's true. Many of you might have been around the church when we were uh, doing Hurricane Sandy. And so it was a chaotic time in the church. I was working here and um, the power was out for an entire week and a couple of the pastors were trying to organize how can we bring aid to some of the families, some of you guys that were without power, without food, without water, things like that. So we just had a day where everyone's going to clean up and we're all going to go out together as a team. And so everyone showed up and it was madness, absolute madness. There was just like 100 people packed in the foyer of the, the main sanctuary, or not the main sanctuary, the main church building. It was packed out and no one knew who was in charge. And because of that, there's just this general sense of anxiety. But then when one person stands up and says, here's what we're going to do, everyone just kind of feels like, ah, at ease, right? There's something about knowing who's in authority. It's, there's something about knowing who's in leadership that puts everyone else at ease. I think partly in, in some way, the reason why light groups failed is because no one knew who the clear leader was. And so because of that, everyone kind of relinquished themselves of responsibility, I'm just like, well, I'm not in charge. Well, who's in charge, right? It's natural for us to be looking for who is the leader. And the purpose, as you see in the Bible, of leadership is not so they can lord over people. It's so that they can serve because Jesus modeled that for us. And so when God tells us how to distinctly fulfill our roles in the body of Christ, there is safety and freedom. You actually feel better when you know that you're supposed to submit and this is your calling by God because God is the one who looks out for those that seem inferior. 
He's the one that brings justice to those that are oppressed. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So listen, if you are afraid that submission equals weakness, you don't have to worry, as a Christian at least, because you have a God in heaven who looks out for the oppressed and looks out for the people that seem like they're left out of the crowd. So here's my main thesis for this entire evening. It's a long way of saying this. Competence does not determine our roles. God does. Competence. Competence, if you don't know, know what that word means, competence means the ability to complete a task. So listen, this is a very provocative statement. The ability to complete a task does not determine what role you play. God determines what your role is. Now, on, on the surface, that statement might not seem that provocative. But here's what I'm really saying. If you take it to the, the, the nth degree, this is what it could mean. There's a possible world in which you could be better than everybody else at a particular task, but not be called to it. There could be a case, and we'll get to this in a second, there could be a case that one of you women are a better Bible teacher than me. But it may not be your role to play. Provocative statement, right? There could be a case that you're more qualified than the person that's your boss, and yet that's not your role. You could be more intelligent than your teacher, and yet that's not your role to instruct the rest of the class. Competence does not determine our roles. The Lord does. And here's the first thing that the Lord would have us to find out tonight, and it's this. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Now, what it doesn't say is submit to all men. It's not saying in general women always have to be in this uh, a lower position or in submission to men. It's saying that wives to their own husbands are to submit. And that word submit means authority, order, or subjection to. And this just means just like Christ was subject to the Father, he was in submission to the Father's will. In other words, you have an idea of what you want to do, right? But here's what God wants to do, which is above that, and you go underneath that. You're submitting to the Lord's will and whatever he has for us to do. And that's what Christ did. So obviously it can't be a symbol of inferiority if we are in submission, right? If Christ himself was subject to the Father. But why are wives supposed to submit to husbands? You know, this is not something that's very popular in our day and age, right? Like, that the wife would submit to the husband. Why, why is that? Well, number one, this is a model of Christ's relationship to the church. The, the first reason is it's a model of Christ's relationship to the church. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 24 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So, I mean, this is what it's really saying. It's saying that Christ left us the model because in submitting, wives submitting to husbands, it's a picture of the church, all of us, submitting to the lordship of Christ. Doesn't mean your husband's perfect, etc. Actually, it's, it's what actually makes this more difficult is that your husband isn't perfect, right? He's a sinful person. He might make bad decisions, but you're trusting regardless because this is what God has established. Another reason to submit is Someone has to lead. Somebody has to do it, right? You can't have two people leading. 
uh, I think it was William Lane Craig that first gave this illustration. But he says, imagine two people that are dancing and both of them try to lead. Right? It doesn't mean one's a better dancer than the other, but whenever you have a dance, one person leads and the other person submits in order to have a beautiful dance that everyone else can enjoy and watch and be in awe of. But if both people try to lead or both people try to submit, you're in trouble. So someone has to lead. And you've seen that in light groups. You might see that in your schools. You might see that in different relational situations. And number three, this is what God has commanded and established even back in Genesis. From the very first man and woman, this is what he established. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. It says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And so men are to have the, the role of authority in a church. This is actually what it's saying. Now, the way that that plays out differs from congregation to congregation, but what we believe here at Calvary Chapel is we are complementarians uh, as opposed to egalitarians. So you might not remember those terms. It's not really that important, but this is what we believe. Uh, Tim, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, says it best. He says this, equal in value, but different in function. This is what we believe. That men and women are equal in value before the Lord. Not inferior. But you have different functions. Uh, Tim Keller's wife actually said this really, really awesome quote. She says that each person gets to follow the role of Jesus. No matter whether you're a man or a woman. Because think about it, right? Jesus is both Lord, but he also modeled what it's like to submit and to serve. And it's a different aspect of the life of Christ that we get to model by taking on one of those roles. And once again, this is not because of competence or ability. Because how would that even work, right? If what we're saying is that the reason why women have to submit to their own husbands is because they're not competent, that would mean that every single woman created would have to be not as good or not as able to do every single task that a man could do. How would that even work, right? Like, every time a man could cook, it's like the woman has to be worse, just like objectively worse, right? That doesn't make sense. There are some things that, or, that women are generally better at than men are. There are things that they have as strengths that men don't have. And this is the beauty of marriage, is that the two become one, and you have different aspects that reflect the glory of God together as you come together and explore that in a relationship. So it's not because of competence, and it's not because of your ability that you are submitting, but it's actually because you are competent, because you're able, that you are laying aside those gifts from the forefront to say, I'm willing to go wherever the Lord leads, and he's placed this man, this husband in my life to figure that out. Uh, John Piper, also uh, a pastor, noted this. He says, when men have, you know, oftentimes when you hear that men have the authority, right, this kind of like makes people like, you know, feel weird, especially about even talking about it in church because it seems like in talking about it that they have this like power. They have authority. They have power over other people. But he says it's the burden of responsibility and not the right of power. It's the burden of responsibility. So check this out. To be a leader doesn't mean that you have more power. It just means that you're the one who gets the blame. You're the one who is responsible for each and everything to lay our lives down. That's what Jesus did. He modeled that for us. That because he is Lord, because he is our leader, he is our king, but he actually 
showed us what that's like by laying his life down for us. And we are to do that exact same thing as men for our wives one day when you're married. We are to be living our lives in such a way that is protecting the honor and protecting the rights of the woman that we are married to. To loving her as Christ loved the church. And we see that in verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. And so this love is the agape love. It's the all-encompassing love. The selfless love. Not just a kind of love of just like, yeah, I'm friends with you. Yeah, you're cool. But just a, a completely selfless giving over to. And that's how we're to be loving one another. And um, I think I've said this before, but... You know, no one argues when everyone talks about, like, men and women should have the same exact roles in everything. Like, everything a man can do, a woman can do. I agree with that up into ordination. But everyone, what everyone talks about is, like, well, women should have the right to do that. Yeah, I, I might agree that women's might, women may have the right to do certain things. But when it comes to responsibility, think about this. No one argues when a man, you know, in um. Aurora, Colorado, when there was that shooting in the movie theater, and there was a, a famous story of a guy who actually, when uh, they were being shot at, him and his girlfriend, he actually jumped over his girlfriend and covered her and uh, was able to save her life while he was shot to death. And there's no one that would look at that situation and say, well, no, the woman had the right to die, right? There's something noble, inherently noble, in the fact that a man lays down his, his life for women and children. And that's what we're called to do as men of God, is to be the first people that take the blame and the responsibility. And we're to be doing this, as it says in verse 18, as is fitting in the Lord. So obviously not just following them wherever they go, but doing what is fitting in the Lord and what is glorifying to God, knowing that God's lordship has authority even in the household. Okay, so what does this look like? What does that look like? Well, I would say this. Ladies, this means for you, find a husband that you can follow. If you are... Don't look at them. In a relationship, potentially thinking about a relationship. And the person that you're potentially or you're in a relationship with now is not leading you anywhere that you want to go. Maybe you should not follow him. Because all of us think as we enter a relationship, two things. Number one, I want them to love me as I am. The deepest and darkest parts of me, I want them to love me as I am and not change me. But I want to change them. There are certain things about them I don't like, but they'll change in time, right? It's selfish, selfish to think that I don't have to change, but they do, and in time they'll figure that out. It's egotistical. So, husbands, I would say this. Find a wife that you're willing to sacrifice for. Not superficially, get to know that person, and then find out, is this a person that I'm saying, yep, this person is, is worth pursuing and sacrificing, giving myself over to, for all for those things. Um, so it says, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. So what does that love look like? Then you have to ask yourself, how did Christ love the church? Now, when it talks about bitterness, what is that saying? It's not just talking about, like, she makes him bitter, but that could just mean, like, you have junk throughout the day and you just go to work or you're at school and people just make you mad and you don't bring that bitterness and you put that upon her. You protect her from being the brunt of all of your frustrations and vexations and, and whatever. You're treating her with love because you're selfless. And that's the whole point. Now, I'm going to say this. Um, I, I've been thinking about this. I'm not really 
You tell me if it's true. Not out loud, but you think about this. I'm just going to say it, and you tell me if it's true. Could it be possible that the reason why teenagers are jumping into relationships so fast is because they're actually desperate for actual love and true community? Is it possible? Like, I was trying to think about this today. Like, why is it that people of all generations, when I was a teenager, there's always, like, this, like, nagging feeling that if you're not in a relationship, you're a lesser person than everybody else. I think, in part, it might be, be because we're not actually experiencing a true loving community. I'm not just talking about, like, like as couples. I'm talking about maybe as a family. At home, you're not receiving the true love that you, you actually need to, uh, in order to be affirmed. Maybe as a youth group or as a church, you're not feeling a part of the community of love here, and you're attending with maybe like three of your friends, but you don't actually feel affirmed and loved in the way that you should. And so because of that, you're looking for the ultimate counterpart that will be able to love you and give you that community that you so long for and desire. Well, we got to be careful that we don't immediately jump into those relationships to look for something that only God can give us and what the church should give us. What if the reason why a lot of people leave church after high school isn't necessarily because they don't believe God exists, not even necessarily because they love sin and they want to go partying, but because they're not really part of a loving community. And this is what we're supposed to model for each other because that's what Christ did for us. If it's the case that you feel like you come here on a Friday night, you feel like a part of a big family, it's going to be hard for you to leave, right? Even if you weren't here on a Friday night, you'd be like, oh, man, like I didn't get to see my family, right? Because your heart is attached to that. But if you're not invested, in other words, if people aren't investing in your life and you're not investing in other people's lives, not just because this is, this is how we think in our day and age, is I need people to come to me and say hi. I need people to come to me and reach out and tell me I'm wonderful and awesome and whatever. But you can do that for somebody else too. And if we're not having both that give and take of I'm going to receive love and I'm going to give love, in part of this family, we're all, we're all committed to each other for life, then of course you're going to leave. But why would you leave? To search for true loving community elsewhere in the church. I don't think a lot of people just leave and they're isolated, right? It's not like I've seen over the years a lot of people isolated as hermits and like they're 25 now, they're living at home, and they don't talk to anyone. If anything, they're part of a loving community in the secular world where they're going out drinking and partying and whatever, and they, they found that community there. So I venture to say perhaps we need to start change our, changing our thinking as a youth group as to how to show that love in a non-superficial way so that people, when they leave this room, they don't feel like, yep, that was an interesting Bible study. That's great. Hopefully you get a lot of this message, but I really hope that you feel like this is family here because I'll be here forever as long as I'm like, you know, not dead. I don't mean this church. I mean like you have access to me. You have my phone number. If you don't, you can get it from me afterwards. Leaders are here. They're investing in your lives. Like we're not going anywhere. Even if I, like, got up and moved to Japan, you have my number. Like, you can call me. It doesn't matter what I'm, you know, going through in life. And I hope you know that. And I hope that not only you know that of me and the leaders, but you have that of each other. That is so important. 
Then when you go off to college, you have not just like me reaching out to you, but like all of your friends, your family, like coaching you on and saying, yeah, go do it. We want to see you make a difference for the name of Jesus. We want to see you like start a prayer group or get involved in a Bible study. So hopefully that happens, you know. But very often we're just so searching for that love within a relationship. And that's what we're going to be talking about a little bit more on at the Vertical Identity Conference. But it's important to note like we shouldn't be looking for that in another person and that other person alone because you're going to crush them with your expectations. Because they're not going to be, they're not going to be able to give you the love that, number one, Christ can only give you and the church can only give you. That's what I'd say. Okay, so the next thing is children and parents. Look at verse 20 and 21. We'll go a little bit faster here because you guys aren't kids. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Okay, I was just kidding about the children part. This is really just talking about, like, you are children, right? Because you were birthed by your parents at some point. And the fact that you live under your parents' authority now, you live in, the, you know, under the same roof, you drive their vehicles, you don't have your own money, they give you allowance, perhaps. You are under their authority. And so children are to obey their parents in all things. Now, our natural response to parenting is this. I will obey them only if I can trust that they make good choices. Right? This is how we act. And when I say we, I just like, I've gotten over this because I'm older now. I'm 28. I'm just saying. Like when you're told by your parents to clean your room, meh, maybe you'll do that. Like if you think it's actually a good idea, maybe you're going to have friends over. Yeah, I probably should clean my room because otherwise they're going to think that I'm a slob and a mess. Okay, I'll clean my room. But then when your parents say, drive your siblings, well, that doesn't seem like a great choice. That's, I'm going to be using my gas money. I'm going to be using my time. It might take like three hours to drive them everywhere they have to go. So I don't know if that's a great decision, mom and dad. And so you're willing to kind of like rebel, right? How about don't text while I'm talking to you? Well, hold on. Maybe my parents are going to, or maybe my friends are going to say something very important. How, do, how can I know that what you're telling me right now is more important than what my friends are going to tell me? And then they start talking to you about, like, some long story about, like, when they were kids and, like, not important at all. And you're just like, you see, I miss out, like, five text messages and, like, one Snapchat notification. Thanks a lot, mom and dad. Right? So we're only willing to submit if we can trust that our parents are going to help us make good choices. I remember, that I, I think I've shared this before, but one of the stupidest things I've ever done is when I was trying to buy my first car, which was, so I have an MR2 right now. I, had, I wanted to buy an 80s Toyota MR2. I have a 1992 Toyota MR2. I wanted like a 1985 Toyota MR2, which is amazing because it looks like a refrigerator mixed with a spaceship. It's amazing. I totally would totally, I would buy that car right now if I could. It's like, if you can find them, they're super rare, but like they're all just like broken down by now. So they're probably like 600 bucks or whatever. But they're like so small, two-seaters, and they're like from the future except from the 80s. So... I really wanted this car. And so I, I saw one for $1,000. Yeah, that gives you an idea of how, like, awesome the car was. And this was, how old am I? I'm 28. So this was 2005. Yeah, so this is 2005. So the car was still old at that time, but $1,000 for a car, probably not in the best shape. And you know it wasn't in the best shape because there was, like, duct tape holding the window up. And I was trying to tell my parents 
that this was going to be an amazing deal, a great purchase. And my parents were like, I don't think so. And I was just like, you don't know anything about cars. I work at a gas station, okay? And I looked back at that, I was like, I was an idiot. Oh, man, I was so bad. But that, to me, illustrates the point that oftentimes when we believe our parents are not to be trusted, we don't obey. But Paul explains that we should obey our parents regardless of whether or not we think they're trustworthy. Why? Because we are, it says right here, it is well-pleasing to the Lord. The Lord has placed you in the family that you're in. He chose them for you. And listen, I know that some of you may not have the best of all family situations. But understand this, that God is still the ultimate Lord of your household. And he has called you there for a season. And you're not going to live in your parents' house for the rest of your life unless you're me. So, that being the case, <laughs> while you're there, be a blessing. Be a blessing to your parents. Okay, they may not treat you the way that you think that you deserve to be treated. But maybe it can be a blessing so that in 10 years you have a great relationship with your parents. Because the time that you have now is sowing those seeds. They'll be a lot harder for you if you remain distant from your parents now to try to make an intimate relationship with them in 20 years. So I would say to you, think about the ways that you can be a blessing to them. Once again, this is not about competence. Because you, you might know more. Like I could have realistically known more about that car than my parents. But that doesn't mean that I should have rejected their uh, instruction. We're to be obedient in all things. And then it says to fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. None of you are dads here. But in the future, don't provoke your children. I might do that. There's a part of me that kind of wants to be like the most embarrassing dad ever. Like I can already think about it. Like what I would do, I'm going to make sure that I have a billion photos of them and like everywhere they go, I'm going to be hounding them down. They're going to have like, you know, a cell phone at H3 and a tracking device. You ever go into like the store and you see those people with like the monkey backpacks but there's a leash on it? That's going to be me. I'm like, nope, no way that you're dying before you're 85. And I'm just going to be the most protective dad ever. But then I look at this passage. I'm like, do not provoke your children. So maybe the monkey backpack will be extra cute and then he won't feel provoked. Maybe at age 30, he might want to get a bigger backpack, but. Okay, verse 22. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you have a master in heaven. So now he applies this principle towards bondservants and masters. But remember, since there was no word for servants apart from slavery back then, that this can be applied to workers. And so those of you that will have a job or are in jobs right now, or you do work of any kind, we can apply these principles to our lives and thinking of, when we have people that ask us to complete a task, are we looking to be, as he says, uh, men pleasers? Are we committing eye service? Or are we doing it to please the Lord? Instead, we're supposed to do things heartily. Do things with all of our might, all of our heart, with all of our soul. 
because we understand that in doing this task, though it might seem menial, not important, this task can actually glorify the Lord. And so, then I would ask the question, when do we tend to do things without our heart? When is it that you and I, when we complete tasks, when we do work, when we have a job, and we seem to like do things without our heart, when does that happen? I would say three, three instances I can think of when that happens. Number one, when we don't see the point behind it. We don't do things heartily as, and as unto the Lord when we don't see the point behind it. How do I know this? Because whenever people ask you to do stuff, you, you ask, why? And if you, it doesn't seem like there's any good reason, like somebody just says, well, just because I said so and because I'm the boss and you're not. People are like, well, I don't want to do it. If there's no point, then why would I waste my time doing it? Well, if he's your boss and he's paying you money, you should just probably do it because he's the one who's giving you money, right? Or maybe you're not getting any money, but you're still asked to do something. Instead, we're to be doing it heartily as unto the Lord. Because here's the thing. Sometimes we'll do things that seem pointless and we'll do it just to get it done or just to please our boss or our parents or our teachers. But actually, the way that we should do it is to do it as if Jesus himself has asked us to do it. Now, that would change the way that we do work altogether, right? Here's another reason or another way that we, uh, another time when we tend to do things without our heart. When we think our work is useless. When we think our work is useless, we don't put our heart into it. Right? If we think that we're going to do something and it's just going to fail, then like, why am I, why am I even going to bother? If I'm going to just going to do this and you're just like outside, you're shoveling, and then there's a dumb, like right now I have, um, I told you I have an MR2. It's at my apartment right now because they just decided, the whole apartment complex decided to take all the snow and say, he's not going to use that car and just shovel it right in front of my car. Right? And now, by now, it's like sheets of ice are just blocking my car from leaving. So unless I like muster up superhuman strength, like, Benji back there, and like pick up my car and move it, it's just not moving. And so for me, I wouldn't want to dig it out because it feels like it's useless. And maybe that's a case when you wouldn't. And then thirdly, and maybe most importantly for us tonight, we tend to not do things with our heart when we don't think we'll be rewarded fairly. When we don't think we're going to be rewarded fairly. So maybe those of you that still do some shoveling for money outside, if you were told that you shovel your, your friend's driveway and you'll be paid $5, most of you would say, no, are you kidding me? Like, my nails are going to get ruined, you guys out there, right? Like, we wouldn't want to do that. You're going to break a sweat. You just straightened your hair all morning and it's going to be all frizzy, right? You wouldn't want to do it. But once again, regardless of the compensation that men give us, do it heartily because it says here, you will receive a reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. So now, if you direct the reasons and motivations for doing work to God, regardless of what people pay you, God is the one who rewards you. Very interesting. This reminds me of the parable of the workers in the vineyard in Matthew chapter 20. When people are all outside and they're, they're doing different work, but they all start at different times of the day. And then people that started early on in the day and then people that started right before the, the job was finished got paid the same wage. And people were outraged. And so the master of the vineyard said in uh, Matthew chapter 20, verse 13, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? 
Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last, for many are called but few chosen. So here's the thing. The reason why people get aggravated, like in this parable, is because they're like, these people that did so much less work than me are getting paid the same amount as me. I should get more compensation, right? That's, that seems rational, but not when you realize that everything you receive is grace. You don't actually earn anything. So in actuality, when you take it from that standpoint of, I am a sinner in need of forgiveness, all you have is gratitude. When God does give you a reward, you're like, I don't, deserve, what are you, are you serious? I get to go to heaven, and you're giving me rewards on top of heaven? That's pretty amazing. And so because we know that God gives us a reward that we don't deserve, we don't feel like we deserve any reward from people. And so this should change our entire outlook on how people treat us. Bosses, teachers, parents. When people do things to you and you're like, well, what am I going to get out of it? Maybe you don't get anything on earth. But God will reward you. And if I could just say one thing, it would be this. It is so hard, so hard to find people that are passionate about anything and will do any type of work with all of their heart. There are few and far in between. And those people I love I love seeing certain individuals get a passion for something and they just completely blow their minds. They go above and beyond what I asked them to do. It's just crazy to me. It's just like, wow, this person actually loves what they're doing. But when you have a heart of gratitude and you have a passion for something, you're willing to do things heartily because you realize that you're serving the Lord and you're not serving men. So that's a heart-searching question, right? Like, what work are you doing now that you're really, you're really only doing to please people? You're doing the bare minimum you're doing the base requirement. Your teachers ask you to do something. You're like, ah. Or maybe someone here at the church says, you mind if you move those tables for me? What if you said, like, not only will I move those tables, whatever else you need, I will do it. Like, you know how many people you bless? This doesn't have to be me. This is not me calling for servants. I'm saying, like, if there's any pastor on staff, any servant, some of the people here that are leaders also double as, you know, co- co-workers with me here at the church. If you went to any staff member and said, do you need anything? you need help with anything? you blow their minds because that never happens with anyone. Old people, young people. But you get to set the example because you have a heart that's changed by Christ. And you're not doing that to, like, impress people so that people— the only time I see this really happen is when people want a job at the church. Suddenly, everyone's asking me what, they need, what I need help with. Hey, brother, do you need help with anything at all? It's like, what do you want? You want to work with me? You want to intern? Right? Instead, what if we just did things simply because we're grateful? We did things in everything and anything serving the Lord Christ. Okay. So, going a little bit long here. I'll just conclude in this one thought. And that's this. Competence. I began this message by saying competence Your ability to complete a task does not determine your calling or your role, but God does, the Lord does. That being the case, where is God calling you? Because hear this. Maybe you feel like you're a great teacher, and maybe that doesn't mean that you're called to be a pastor. Maybe you feel like you have a gift of leadership, but maybe God's not calling you, at least for this season, to be a leader, but to be a servant. There could be areas in which you feel that you are competent, but your competence does not determine where God is calling you. Instead, ask yourself, as Paul addressed the people in in Colossae here, that in the place that you are now, to be faithful there, 
to be serving the Lord there. And as you serve the Lord there, he will be the one who gives you the reward. So a lot of you, and I've, I may have said this before, a lot of you are waiting until you're out of high school to be used of God. When God has called you to the school that you're in, he's called you to the family you're in, he's called you to the environment that you live in, to be a light, to be salt, to be a witness of his glory, to be a faithful servant that serves with all of his heart. And he's waiting for people like that to show his power and say, here's my Holy Spirit, go and do it. Because he'll empower you in that moment. As you say, you know what? I feel like I'm a better, I think I'm, I'm smarter than everybody else in this class. I think I'm a better soccer player than everyone in, you know, in my team. But I'm not going to use that gifts for myself because I serve the Lord. It doesn't matter if I'm good at that thing. Instead, what I'm going to think about is how can I serve God in, in the place that he has called me? And by you doing that, laying your life down, laying your calling down, that's when you are able to be free and safe, knowing that it may never get used, but there could be a day that, you know, the Lord sees the humble and he raises them up. He sees the person who's meek and says, you know what, you're going to inherit the earth because you've loved me first. And not your occupation, not your calling, not your gifting, but you loved me. And that's when he rewards you. So let's pray.